Well, good morning, uh, everyone. It's uh, good to be here this morning. Thank you, Zach and, and Gabby, for leading us in worship, and Brian for uh, hosting. For those of you who are Toronto Maple Leaf fans, this has been a very sad week. Um, 55 years, probably 54 years of my 57 years of life on earth, I have been a diehard Leaf fan. And I, Monday morning, made a commitment that if the Leafs lost that final game and blew the 3-1 to series lead they had against Montreal, I would be choosing a new team uh, to cheer for. As many people said on Facebook, it's not good for our health to continue cheering for the Leafs when they just continually let us down. I made that commitment. The Leafs lost Monday night, and just like I do every other year, I woke up Tuesday morning, and I had my ears glued to the sports radio to hear how my team could improve and how we were going to do it next year. So I haven't given up on the Leafs, but I was really interested in listening to sports radio and to hear what the, the, the pro analysts um, had to say about the reasons why the Leafs collapsed, the Leafs failed. And uh, there's a number of reasons given, um, you know, the fact that there was no fans in the crowd, um, the uh, coaching in different uh, areas of the game uh, that were critical. Um, Someone even blamed Doug Ford. Uh, for the collapse of the Leafs. Uh, Doug Fort was at fault because he opened the golf courses too early uh, and uh, the Leafs collapsed for for that reason. But perhaps the most common reason that was shared was that the star quality players on the Leafs didn't play uh, as they were expected to. They didn't put the puck in the net. Uh, They didn't raise the level of their game to playoff quality. Uh, They didn't seem to be able to handle the extra pressure that was put upon them. Uh, They they didn't cause the other players around them to to raise their level either. Uh, As far as the Leafs were concerned, their star quality players didn't shine. Uh, They didn't make the difference that they were brought on the team to make for the playoffs. Have you ever wondered what it takes to have star quality. Who are the stars of 2021? You know, if we were to go on Google and to just ask Google that question, who are the stars of 2021, you would come up with a bunch of lists, whether it's a list created by Twitter or, or other different social platforms. And we could probably, if we were able to share via Zoom, uh, the names that we would imagine would fall on the world's list of stars for 2021. And typically, the list involves uh, or includes uh, famous people from sports and entertainment and, and from business. We probably would be able to guess some of the names that show up on that list. But you know whose name doesn't show up on that list? Mine. And my guess, none of yours. Because we don't really rub shoulders with that crowd. And I think in most respects, I guess I'm okay not falling on that list of the world's perceived stars. I'm comfortable being an average person from the world's point of view. But what about God's perspective? 
Who are the stars in God's eyes? Who are heaven's shining stars? That may sound like a silly question. I know I was talking to Allison earlier this week, and I was kind of giving her an idea of the direction I was going to go in the introduction of this message, and she kind of looked at me like I had two heads when I was asking her these questions. And yet, hang on with me, it's not as silly as it sounds. Because it's actually a common metaphor that we find in Scripture. Matthew uh, records Jesus, where Jesus says, You are the light of the world, so let your light so shine among men that they see your good works and they give glory to your Father in heaven. And and in the passage that we're going to be looking at in, in, in a moment here from Paul's letter to the Philippians, he actually tells the Philippians that you are bright stars in the world. Imagine that. Followers of Jesus are to be bright stars in the world, shining the light of our redemption so that those who don't yet know Jesus are brought from the darkness into the light of the gospel. And yet, is that what the world perceives us as followers of Jesus to be? Do they see us as bright shining stars or are we more like a gloomy dark cloud? Do they see us as worshipers or do they see us as whiners? Are we known to be kind or considered to be cranky? Why is it that the world paints evangelical born-again Christians as angry? Why So often are we known for what we do and what we don't do rather than what we stand for. Why can people know so much about our political views and yet they know so little about our profession of faith? When your name or my name is spoken in a crowd, Does our name bring a smile to people's face or does it bring a pained expression? Yet Paul in Philippians says, you are bright stars in the world. That as followers of Jesus, that's what we have been saved to be. And he's not just talking to the elite. He's not just talking to the biblical scholars. He's not just talking to missionaries or full-time workers or pastors. He's talking to all of us. We have been saved so that we can be bright, shining stars. God's star quality people in this world. What are the characteristics of a star-quality Christian? What are the commitments that a star-quality Christian has made? Well, that's the answers that Paul's going to give us in the passage that uh, we're going to look at today. So I encourage you to open up your Bible or turn uh, on your phone or computer uh, to your Bible app to Philippians chapter 2. And uh, we're going to be looking over this week and next week, actually, at verses uh, 12 through to 18. So Philippians 2, 12 through 18. And let's just read it now, and then I'm going to actually go back for a little bit. Uh, Brian has read from a, a chapter 1, verse 27. And I, I want to tie this all together so we can see what Paul is doing here when we come into uh, the passage that we will eventually get to today uh, and conclude 
next week. And so in verse 12 of chapter 2, Paul continues writing, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky, as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. As Brian said, uh, today's passage is actually the end of this section of Paul's letter. And it began all the way back in chapter 1, verse 27. I want to encourage you, if you have missed a message over the weeks, uh, I did that message, and then Josh spoke, Brian spoke last week. Uh, one, of the, one of the, I what's the word I want to look for and not be critical, uh, one of the challenges of having different people speak is just making sure that there is that flow, because we sometimes can view it and go, there's a standalone message and there's a standalone message. And yet what we're trying to share with you is Paul's letter and his flow of thought. And so I want to just try to tie what we've actually heard in the last uh, three weeks uh, together so that when we move into today's passage, we can see what Paul is trying to do. And so when we we were back in uh, verse 27 of chapter 1, Paul said these things. He said, there's just one thing I want to make clear to you. I don't know if I'm going to get out of prison or not, whether I'm going to live or whether I'm going to die, but there's one thing that I need to make crystal clear to you Philippians uh, and, as, and, and as well to those of us today. And Paul says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And we saw back then that, that the word conduct literally means live as citizens. And so what Paul was saying to the, to the Philippians is, In Philippi, while you're situated there, live as citizens of heaven. And by extension, what he's saying to us today is, wherever you're situated, whether you're living in Peterborough or Millbrook or Pontypool or Cavan, wherever it might be, wherever you live, live as citizens of heaven. And so he says, live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And we saw that the word worthy meant uh, gave you the picture of a balanced scale. And so what Paul is saying is that the weight of how you live your life should be in balance with the weight of all that God has done for us. And so, conduct yourselves worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's how we are to live. And, and if you remember that message and you continue in the text, Paul points out four different things that we can do to live in, in such a way. Strive t- together. Contend. Uh, don't lose courage. Be willing to suffer. The bottom line for, for Paul, the, the message he wanted us to understand is that if you have had a true encounter with Jesus Christ, if you've experienced the gospel change in your life, then there must be a change in the way that you live your life. And for Paul, it was inconceivable 
That, that anyone could have an encounter with Jesus and, and experience salvation and yet live no differently. And what Paul wants us to understand is that those who don't yet follow Jesus draw conclusions about Jesus and about Christianity and about the gospel that we profess by watching the way that we live. And as, again, inconceivable as it was to Paul that it could happen, it does happen. That the way that we live can actually turn people off of Jesus and off of Christianity and away from the gospel. But the flip side of that is this, that we can have a huge impact on people by the way that we live our life. Well, we can argue and talk till we're blue in the face and people may not listen, but the world stands up and takes notice on how we respond to the circumstances and the situations of life, how we respond to suffering and trial and temptation, how we uh, as Christians have responded to the pandemic. The world stands up and takes notice. And when we conduct ourselves as citizens of heaven in a manner that's worthy of the gospel of Christ, the world will stand up and take notice. Then we moved into chapter 2 and Josh shared with us Paul's call to us as a community of faith to unity uh, and to harmony and to have a a self-sacrificing love for each other where we look out for the interests and the needs of others and we put those interests and needs above and beyond Hours. And I remember at the conclusion of that message I was hosting that day, I said to you, we can't do that on our own. We need God's help to be able to live that kind of way. And we also need an example. We need a model that we can follow. And that led us right into Brian's message from last week, where we looked at verses uh, 5 through 11. And Paul gives us the ultimate example of selfless love in the person of Jesus Christ. That selfless love that we and the Philippians have been called to, to imitate the model of Christ. And I got to confess, it is so easy to get caught up in Brian's passage from last week. It is one of the most magnificent passages in Scripture. Uh, it's, It's easy to lose focus on what Paul's purpose was for putting those verses in this letter. And it's true, it it can stand alone. Like if you want to know what Paul's theology concerning Christ is, just read verses 5 through 11. The cross of, of Jesus, I would even say the scandal of the cross, was central to Paul's understanding of everything Christian. Jesus pouring himself out and and humbling himself gives us the perfect expression of what God is like. You want to know what God-likeness looks like? Look at verses 6 through 11 in the example of Jesus. That that the pre-existent Christ would pour himself out, take on the role of a servant, humble himself to the point of death, Instead of being selfish and being a grabbing, a grabbing kind of being, rather, he, he gives up everything for the sake of others. And Paul says, and this is, 
right when you think, okay, Paul, you've, you've lost the plot. Like, I get it. You have just lost yourself in the majesty of Jesus. Uh, but where are you going with this? And Paul goes, no, 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 I haven't lost the plot. Let me reel you back in. Because you see what I've just talked about? The self-sacrificing, the, the, the willingness to put, ev- put others' interests and, and needs ahead of our own. We see that in Jesus. That's what I'm calling the Philippians to. By extension, that's what I'm calling Auburn Bible Chapel to. And in the passage that we are going to look at this week and next week, Paul starts to apply what he's been teaching from verse 27 of chapter 1 right through the end of Brian's text last week to the situation in Philippi and by extension to our situation here in Peterborough. And this call for self-sacrificing love for the sake of unity and harmony, it's, it's, it's good for us individually. It helps us to grow spiritually for sure. It's great for us corporately. And we're going to see that in the verses to come. But Paul wants us to understand that it's critical as it pertains to our testimony and our witness in the world that we find ourselves living in. And so we come to our passage today, and Paul's going to lay out for us four characteristics, four commitments that star-quality Christians make that, that define what star-quality Christians look like. And as we begin verse 12, we come to that first characteristic uh, or commitment. And I'm just going to give it a little bit of a side. If you notice in verse 12, Paul starts with a couple of words of encouragement before he actually gets into his first imperative or command. He says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. And there's things going wrong in the Philippian church. There's signs of disunity and and disharmony. We're going to read about two women that are actually fighting with each other. But Paul still loves them. They are his dear friends. And, and, and he encourages them by pointing out their obedience in the past. Whether he's been with them or, not, or he's been absent from them, that they've been obedient. And so he encourages them. And now he's ready to give them exhortation. And, and it just, it hits me that if we want people to listen to our words if we want people to care about what we have to say and what we have to tell them, we have to show that we care for them first. You know, over the years of my ministry here and other places, I've had many people give me their opinion, advice. A lot of it probably hasn't stuck. But there's a few things that some people have said over the years that have never left my mind, and probably because I knew that they said it out of compassion and care. And the one thing that one person said to me, and they might be listening right now, and I knew that it came from a posture of care. They said, Brent, it's very evident that you care about God's Word, but it's not always evident that you care about God's people. And I took that to heart, and I hope I've improved But Paul's saying it here as well. I care for you. And because I care for you, what I have to say for you is for your own good. Not to harm you, 
And I say it to you because I love you. And so take that encouragement and, and take that life lesson from, from Paul's example. And, and he moves from encouragement to exhortation. He gives us the first characteristic, the first commitment of star quality Christians. And he says this, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation. That, that's a phrase I got to admit that I've never really fully understood what it meant. And I know it causes many people who read that or hear it for their first impression to be, that doesn't sound right. Especially coming from Paul. For some reason, I think our ears want to hear that Paul is saying, continue to work for your salvation. Continue to work at your salvation. Continue to work towards your salvation. But that isn't what Paul is saying. In fact, the context really has nothing to do with that at all. So I want to make sure that we understand what Paul is actually saying when he says that here's the first characteristic, the first commitment of a star-quality Christian. They do their own part. They work out their salvation. And to understand what Paul is saying, you really can't read verse 12 without reading verse 13. And that's problematic because my second point of my message, the last point I'm going to make today, actually has to do with verse 13. So I don't want to give too much of verse 13's thunder away in my first point on, chapter, on verse 12. But let me suffice it to say, Paul says, work out your salvation. But verse 13 tells us that the reason that we can work out our salvation is because God's already at work. Salvation begins with God. We are to work out what God has already worked in. Now, in the first century, the verb work out actually was used for mining silver. And so you would say that the miners were going into the mine to work out or to carry out the silver that was already in the mine. And so what Paul is saying here, in the same way as Christians... We are to work out the implications of our salvation in every area of our life. We are to mine the depths and the riches uh, of our redemption. And, and the fact that we would do this as individuals is assumed. Now, I want you to hear this. Paul realizes that as individuals, we have to respond to this commitment, to this characteristic, that we're going to do our part. But Paul's main focus here is corporate. He's calling the church at Philippi to work out your salvation. And again, bringing everything together of the last four messages, what Paul wants us to see is that this call to work out your salvation is a call to unity and to harmony. How? By imitating the mindset of Christ and not arguing and grumbling and fighting, which was going on in Philippi and which goes on in way too many churches today. 
And so what does it look like to work out your salvation? What does it mean? It means that we live out what we know to be true. It means that we behave as believers who understand how great our salvation is. It means that we produce the fruit of our salvation. Peace, love, uh, harmony in spirit. And we encourage others to do the same. And when Paul says, work out your salvation, do your own part, I think because of the day and age we live in, we want to hear Paul's words and individualize them. But again, that wasn't Paul's main focus. This isn't a call for navel-gazing. Rather, this is a call to look out and to look for the needs and the interests of others. And so what does doing our own part, working out our salvation, really imply? What does it really need? It calls for a radical change in the way we view God's will in our life. Are we willing to obey God? Are we willing to live up to his expectations with no strings attached? And if you've been following the letter so far, look at the things that Paul has been calling for us to do and to be as individuals, yes, but as a corporate body, a community of faith. He's calling for unity and and for harmony and for self-sacrifice and for looking out for the interests and the needs of others. And the question, the big question is, are we willing to do that? Are we willing to be obedient to God's will, to God's call in our life? And my guess, if you're like me, is my answer is yes, I'm willing as long as. Dot, dot, dot. I'm willing to look out for the needs and interests of others. I'm willing to, to, to show self-sacrificing love. I'm willing to, to fight for unity and harmony as long as the cost isn't too great to me. As long as it doesn't cut into my priorities, my hobbies, my passions, my likes, my relationships. And yet the call of Scripture to us as followers of Jesus is just simply follow me. No strings attached. Follow me and leave the details in God's hands. So what's that first characteristic of a star-quality Christian? That commitment is we do our part. We carry out the implications of the salvation that God has worked in us. And don't miss that last couple of words that Paul adds to this first command. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Living out the Christian life is not something that's to be done lightly or, or apathetically, lived out in a way that we're okay with compromise. Well, Paul says that we do it with fear and trembling. And those words are packed with meaning, packed with emotion. A lot of theologians will, will use the term 
reverent awe to, to kind of capture all of the emotions and, and all the feelings and all the meaning that are in those words. That we, we have such a awe and reverence and respect for God and His greatness and His perfection and His holiness that on the one hand, we're, we're afraid to sin, but it's coupled with this, with this super strong desire to please God in everything that we do. That, that we feel, and you see this in Isaiah 6, that this, we feel drawn, drawn, drawn towards God. And yet we hold back because he's so holy and he's perfect. I remember I was at a conference in Colorado years ago. I was with my brother, my oldest brother, John. And uh, there was a bunch of big names uh, within the Christian community that were at this conference. And on this one day, it was lunch and I was a little late coming into the cafeteria. And I could see my brother had saved me a seat at a table. And I started walking towards the table. And I realized sitting at that table was Howard Hendricks. Some of you may know his name. Uh, Michael Card, the Christian musician. And, and Michael Card, the pastor of his church, Scotty Smith. And Scotty Smith has pastored many of the, the big names uh, of Christian music in, in Tennessee. They were sitting at this table, and I'm going, oh my goodness, I, I'm so excited. I almost sped up walking towards the table, and then I realized, oh my goodness, look who's sitting at the table. I'm going to be sitting right beside Howard Hendricks. What if he actually talks to me? What if he asked me a question and I don't know how to answer it? I sound really silly. And so I was drawn to the table, but at the same time, I kind of held back. And that's the sense of reverential awe. And Paul says that we live out, we carry out the implications of our salvation. The posture we have is one of reverential awe. And it makes sense because what did, what did Paul say in verses 9 through 11 that Brian looked at last week? There's coming a day when every created being is going to pay homage to Jesus as Lord. How much more then should we as followers of Jesus who know what it means to be in awe in the presence of the living God, how much more should we take our salvation and the way we live our life seriously and have this desire to please God in the things that we do. And so that's the first characteristic or commitment of a star-quality Christian, is that we do our part. And, and then Paul continues in verse 13, and we've already touched upon it, that you can't read verse 12 without understanding verse 13. And this is the second and the final commitment or characteristic we're going to look at uh, this morning. And that is that star-quality Christians, yes, we do our part, but we depend on God. And it's almost as if Paul, in verse 13, is imagining that people are going to twist his theology by reading verse 12 and and think that he's saying something that he really isn't saying. And so he tells us once again, yes, you are to work out your salvation. You are to do your part. But you do it, and you're only able to do it precisely because God has already been at work in and among you. God empowers you. He gives you the desire and and the ability to act. Not not that we don't do our part. But Paul says first that God works in our will. He aligns our desires to be, he he moves our desires to be aligned with his desires. And, And then Paul says that God works to 
enable us to act. He provides the necessary resources and strength to carry out the things that he calls us to do. And again, it's not saying that we don't do our part. We have to cooperate. We have to work out what God works in. We have to live and work uh, in, in the power and the presence of the Spirit. And I think there's, there's a correction to what we may be thinking, and some of you may be thinking, and Josh and I had this conversation a couple of weeks ago. We can read Paul's letter, and we can think that what Paul is calling us to do is to work out our salvation, and that just simply means we do, 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 and we don't, 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 and we simply obey by adhering to a bunch of rules. And that is so far from Paul's ethics, Christian ethics. We see Paul's understanding of, of what makes a Christian tick uh, in, in Romans 12, 1 and 2, where he says, you don't have to turn to it, let me just read it here, well-known passage. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And listen to verse 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Paul doesn't expect the Philippians or the Auburnites or every other Christian that's lived and is still living to be able on their own to work out their salvation, to fully work out perfectly the implications of what God has worked in us. He fully expects that we would understand that it's only one whose mind has been transformed by the Spirit is capable of carrying out this work. It's only those who've had their life invaded by the Spirit of God, where God moves our desires and our priorities and our likes to be aligned with His, that we are capable of carrying out His work that He's done in us. And that is a truth that I have found so challenging refreshing and constantly having to remind myself of is that on my own, I am totally incapable of doing anything that's, in, that's eternally significant. It's only as God is working in me that my work, my cooperation, my part can be eternally significant. I don't know how many times I've sat around elders' tables over the numbers of years I've been involved here where we've talked about a problem or a challenge or something that we need to do and we've talked for an hour, an hour and a half about it and finally it just hits me. This, this is not something we're going to solve. Like God gives us wisdom, but we have to depend on him. He's going to give us the strength. He is going to give us the resources. He is go- he's going to align our will and our priorities and our focus with his and that's what we need to be praying for. And that, and that brings so much comfort. The, this verse is so comforting. To know that we can lack the desire, we can lack the strength to do what we know God is calling us to do. And we can pray and say, God, can you align my desire with yours? Can you give me the will to do what I know that you're calling me to do? Can you give me the strength? You see, the truth of Scripture is that what God demands, God supplies. And you say, well, Brent, how, how, how do you know that's true? I know it's true because that's at the, at the core of the gospel message. God's demands and expectations concerning sin and sinners puts us at a great loss. But God supplies and he sent his son to die for us 
and, and to take the penalty of sin away. And, and, and God delights in putting us in situations that we can't do it on our own, but we have to depend upon Him and His strength and His power. I'm going to close with a, uh, just an illustration, just putting 12 and 13 together, this doing our part while God is working in us. When Graham was younger and, and he would go grocery shopping with me, uh, we would be going through the aisles and the cart would get fuller and fuller. And Graham was determined that he was going to push the cart. Now, Graham could barely reach the handle and he couldn't see where he was going because he was looking through the cage of the cart and it was full of groceries. And yet he would push the cart and he was so proud of himself. Like he thought he really was pushing the cart and directing it through the store. But anyone else that was watching knew that the only reason the cart was moving is because dad had his hands over top of Graham's hands and was pushing the heavy cart. And the only reason we weren't bashing other customers in the heels with our cart is because dad's hands, who was helping push the cart, was also guiding the cart. That's, to me, such a beautiful picture of what God wants us to do in tandem with him. He calls us to push loads that are much heavier than we can push. He calls us to go forward in a path that we may not even see the direction that we're supposed to head. But we do it depending upon him, knowing that it's his strength that helps us push the load and that it's him that's providing the guidance. That's the beauty of star quality Christians doing their part in total dependence upon God doing his. Encourage you to continue uh, looking at this passage, and uh, we'll conclude by looking at the last two characteristics or commitments of star quality Christians next week. I'm going to call Gabby and Zach to uh, lead us in a, a final song.